0: The Old Testament uh, reading for today will be Exodus 20, verse 7, and that is the first passage we will read. And the New Testament reading will be James 5, 7 through 12. We will will read that passage second. Exodus 20, verse 7, James 5, 7 through 12. As you turn there, I forgot to mention that those books that the men are going to be uh, reading for the uh, Bolstering the Brethren event, they are available on the back table I think they cost us about nine bucks Um, I forgot to say that so we have a whole stack of them back there if you wanted to pick those up for the men's uh, study Exodus 20 verse 7 and James 5 7 through 12 are the scripture readings hear now the reading of God's most holy word you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain this is our sermon text for today. James 5, verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As we have studied the Ten Commandments, one of my prayers for us has been that we would grow in our love for God's law. If we are to love God's law, we must know what it is. And if we are to love God's law, we must understand what it requires and what it forbids. But I think you would agree with me that it is one thing to know and to understand God's law. It's another thing altogether to love it. And God's people ought to love God's law. We should agree with a psalmist who spoke to God saying, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And in another place, he says, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. And again, the psalmist says, For I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. God's people ought to love God's law. We should agree with King David, who spoke of God's commandments, saying, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. God's people should love God's law. Why? Because it is God's law. Because His law is good. His law is pure. His law is right, and keeping it, there is great reward. Brothers and sisters, do you love God's law? Notice, I am not asking you, do you know it? I am not asking you, do you understand it? I am asking you if you love it. Do you love God's law? In my experience, which I admit is very limited, I found that when Christians do speak about God's law, it is often to warn against the misuse of it. I wonder if you have had a similar experience. In other words, when we do speak of God's law, I've found that we often stress what God's law is not good for. And it's very important that we do this. The scriptures do this, don't they? Paul especially does this in his writings. He he warns against the misuse of the law. Do not think that we can earn salvation through law-keeping, Uh, That seems to be a message that he's very concerned to communicate. Uh, God's law is not good for earning salvation. God's law is not good for obtaining justification uh, before God. That is all true. God's law cannot save. The law cannot justify. No, instead, God's law condemns us. When we read the law, we, we realize, or at least we should, that we have broken it time and time again. So the scriptures do warn us against the misuse of the law. And it is right that we stress this too. For for many do stumble over this stumbling stone. That is what Paul calls it in Romans 9.32. He refers to this error as being the stumbling stone that men and women trip over. They think that they can be justified by their works. They think that they can be justified before God by law-keeping, and this is an error that Paul the Apostle and others who write Scripture are very concerned to, to correct. It's a fatal error to seek to be justified by the works of the law instead of by faith in Christ. But we should not forget that the Scriptures do often speak of the law of God as good, I've already cited Psalm 19 and Psalm 119, which which speak beautifully concerning the goodness of God's law. But now let me cite Paul, the man who is famous for his warnings against legalism. He himself says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. That is 1 Timothy 1.8. Paul says that the law is good. It is good. But then he qualifies his statement by saying, if one uses it lawfully. In other words, the law itself is good. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is with the misuse of God's law. God's law is good, but we must be careful to use it lawfully, which means correctly or according to its design, you see. The law becomes a bad thing when men pick it up and use it in a way that it was not designed to be used, you see. But the law itself is good. Indeed, it is very good. For it is from God, and it is for us, and it is for our good. God's law is indeed good. It is good because it shows us our sin. When we meditate upon God's law, it is like looking into a mirror. How do you know what your face looks like? Have you ever thought about that? If it weren't for mirrors, you wouldn't know. Others would know, but you wouldn't know. How do you know what your face looks like? You you know what it looks like by looking into a mirror. And how can a man, how can a woman, examine the condition of their own soul? We must look into the mirror of God's law. We must read it, comprehend it, meditate upon it. And we must ask ourselves ourselves, do I live up to this standard? This is what we call self-reflection. But you cannot self-reflect without a standard, brothers and sisters. You can only self-re- self-reflect, at least in a, in a good and beneficial way, if you have a standard, something to compare yourself to, something to see yourself in. And God's moral law is that standard that we are to use for introspection and self-reflection. When we look into God's law, it functions like a mirror for the soul. It enables us to see our sins, our flaws, our blemishes. And when God's law shows us our sin, it also reminds us of our need for a Savior, Christ the Lord. And so I say that God's law is good because it shows us our sin and it drives us to Christ. And God's moral law is also good, but because it shows the one who has faith in Christ the way to life abundant. In this world, there is a way that leads to death, and there is a way that leads to life. There is a path of wisdom, there is a path of folly, and God's moral law functions like a lamp for our feet. It illuminates the way of righteousness, of goodness, and of blessing. In God's law, we find the will of God revealed. God's law directs us to walk in the right way so that we might live life to the fullest in Christ Jesus. And so I might ask you this question. Do you wish to be blessed? Do you wish to be truly happy and at peace? The first thing you must do is run to Christ, for you are a sinner, and so am I. We must be found in Christ. We must trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. This is the way of blessing. And then, by the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit, we must walk in the right way. And by that I mean, we must love God's law in the heart and keep His commandments in thought, word, and deed. This is the way of blessing. This is the way of happiness. Perhaps you remember the very first words of the Psalter, which say, Blessed is the man who walks... So here is the way of blessing. Here is the way of happiness, to be found in Christ, having your sins washed away, having been justified and made righteous. But here is the way of blessing, being found in Christ. We are to live in obedience to God's law. We are to delight in it. This must be said. Yes, beware of legalism. Uh, Beware of the misuse of the law of God. Don't assume, don't think that Any man can be justified through law-keeping. We cannot because we are law-breakers. And do not add to God's law and heap on more laws to the laws that He has given. This, too, is a form of legalism. All of these things are misuses of the law of God. But do not forget, brothers and sisters, God's law is good. It shows us our sin. It drives us to repentance and faith in Christ. It is also a lamp to our feet. Illuminating for us the way to righteousness and blessing. I think I wish for our young people to understand this above all else. If you wish to have a blessed and happy life, uh, young people, I say to you, learn God's law. Love God's law. Live in obedience to God's law. Be found in Christ Jesus, walking in a worthy manner. God's law is good. We're considering the Ten Commandments. We've come now to the third of the Ten Commandments, which is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Here in the Ten Commandments, we have a summary of God's moral law. Uh, The moral law is here embedded within the Ten Commandments. The first one is this, you shall have no other gods before me. The second is, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And now we come to the third. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I've said this in previous sermons. I'll say it again. The first four commandments all have to do with our relationship to God and with worship. The first commandment addresses the object of our worship. Who is to be worshipped? The answer is Yahweh alone. Is to be worshiped. The second commandment addresses the form of worship. How is Yahweh to be worshiped? Well, as God prescribes and not with idols or images. And now the third commandment deals with the attitude of worship. What should our attitude towards God be when we worship in the congregation and as we worship Him as a way of life? What should our attitude towards God be? Answer We should have reverence for God. We are to have reverence for God's name. The fourth commandment will address the time of worship. And we will see when we come to it that one day in seven is to be set apart as holy unto the Lord. It is to be a day of rest, a day for worship. So do you wish to be truly blessed in this life, friends? Well, I hope that you can see in our consideration of the Ten Commandments that we must start by addressing our relationship with God. If you wish to be blessed, then you must be in a right relationship with God. You must be found in Christ now that we are fallen into sin, but we must live for His glory. We must worship Him supremely. We must love Him supremely. We must worship Him as He has prescribed. We must have this reverential fear for God. This is the way to a blessed and happy life. It begins with our relationship to God. We must start here. The third commandment is this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I want you to notice how broad this commandment is. The Hebrew word translated as take, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, is very generic. It it actually appears over 600 times in the Old Testament. It simply means to carry, to rise, to lift lift up, or to bring It could also mean to lift up high or to exalt. Typically, the word is used to describe the lifting up of a physical object. Men are said to lift up their eyes to heaven or to take their weapons to war or to carry as many of their possessions as they can. But here, the word is used in reference not to a physical object, but to God's name. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God, in vain, the commandment says. God is represented by his name. In fact, this is true of all things. Uh, perhaps you've noticed that things have names, and names represent things. If I say tree, you picture a tree, don't you? You're doing it now, I think. If I say dog, you picture a dog, and there you go again. Uh, names Represent things. Things have names. And to make it more personal, if I say Lindsay or David, you think of a Lindsay and David. And I could bet I know who you are thinking of in this moment. Names are names are powerful, very important, aren't they? People, human beings, entire lives, you know, are represented by names. And this is why the scriptures say that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. What is meant by that? Well, their uh, good name, uh, to have a good name means to have a a good reputation. To have a good name means that the person has a good reputation in life. Uh, You are represented by your name. Your name represents you. This, by the way, is why slander is such a terrible sin. When people slander others, they do damage to the person by dishonoring Their name, the person, might not be present, but slander does damage to the person through the misuse of of their name. And similarly, if we take up God's name, if we take it up, and if we use it in a vain way, we do damage to God's reputation. We dishonor him. God is demeaned. He is disrespected when we take up And use his name in a vain way. That is the thing that is here forbidden in the third commandment. The Hebrew word translated as vain means worthless, empty, inconsequential, even unrestrained or false. So then the third commandment forbids us from taking up God's name to use it in in a way that is empty, careless or false. False. To take up and use the name of God in a vain way is most inappropriate, for God is the opposite of vanity. Vain things lack substance, but God is most substantial. Vain things are untrue, but God is truth. Vain things are empty, but God is the fullness of life. Vain things are worthless, but God is of infinite worth, etc. I think you get the point. It is not at all fitting to take up the name of God, the name represents God, remember, and to use it in a worthless, empty, inconsequential, careless, or false way. For God is not worthless, empty, inconsequential, or false. He is glorious. He is perfectly holy and infinite in all of His perfections. His name is to be honored, therefore, to use God's name in a vain way, reveals that we have no reverence for God in the heart. God is to be revered, brothers and sisters. And this means that His name is to be revered, for He is represented by His most holy name. By the way, you will notice that the commandment does not say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God, period. Rather, it says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Some have taken this commandment too far and have superstitiously avoided using the name of God at all. Perhaps you've heard of this, you know. Some will refuse to speak God's name, uh, the name Yahweh in particular. But notice that is not what is forbidden here. The scripture does not say, do not take or use the name of God, but rather do not take or use the name of God in vain. It is the vain, empty, careless, and false use of God's name that is forbidden in the third commandment so serious is the sin of using the name of the lord in a vain way that god attached a warning to this commandment you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain for the lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain men and women may use the name of god in a vain way without obvious ramifications for it but here the lord says that he will not hold them guiltless in other words he will hold them accountable for this sin. So we know what the third commandment is now. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so let us now go to the heart of the matter by asking what this commandment forbids and what it requires. It's such a broad thing that is said here, you know, it's very generic, but what exactly is forbidden In the third commandment? And I'll use our catechism again to answer this question. I think it is spot on and very helpful. Question 60 of the Baptist Catechism provides a helpful answer. What is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. Notice how broad and generic that answer is, too. The third commandment forbids all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. As you can see, our catechism applies the third commandment in a broad way, and I think it is right. Not only does the third commandment forbid us from using the name Yahweh in a vain way, no, the heart of the matter is that we are forbidden from profaning and abusing anything whereby God makes himself known. This is about reverence, brothers and sisters. God makes himself known not only through his names, but also through titles and through attributes and even through the world that he has made, he has spoken his word. Whenever we are dealing with God's revelation of himself to us, we are to have what in our hearts? Reverence in our hearts for God. Question 59 of our catechism gets to this with more precision when it asks what is required in the third commandment. The the commandment itself is negative. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, but... The negative thing, the negative statement implies something positive. What is required in the third commandment? Answer, the third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. There is some precision, and I think this is a very helpful answer. This is about reverence. God alone is to be worshipped. He's to be worshipped in the way that he says, never with idols or images. And he is to be revered. He is to be respected and even feared. And how are we to respect God? Well, we do not see him face to face, do we? We see him through his self-revelation, though. God has revealed himself to us. And so whenever we are handling God's revelation of himself to us, be it through his Names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. We are to handle these things with reverence in our hearts. God has revealed himself to us in the world that he has made. He has revealed himself to us through his word. God's word is to be respected, therefore, brothers and sisters, and so too is his creation. We are to respect God's revelation through his word and also through his world when I was writing this, I'm wondering how do I communicate this in in a short space, but we live in God's world. Revelation, therefore, general revelation concerning the existence of God and the glory and power of God, it is all around us. We cannot escape it, you know. I would imagine for the one who is alienated from God and at enmity with God because of sin, who is not right with God. That can feel kind of suffocating, perhaps. You know, they try to find some way to escape it. But we are surrounded by God's self-revelation in this world that he has made, you, you see. So we are to have respect for that revelation. He has revealed himself ever more clearly and specifically through his word. When we handle God's word, we are to have reverence for God. We are to have reverence for it. For here, God is making himself known to us. God has revealed Himself to us specifically through His names. Yahweh is the proper name of God. It communicates, among other things, that He is self-existent. But He has also revealed Himself to us with other names and with other titles. He is God Most High. He is the Lord. He is the Almighty One. He is the Lord of hosts. He is Father. And we are to honor God by honoring His names and his titles. God has also revealed himself to us by telling us about his attributes. He is infinite, eternal, and unchanging. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is holy and just. He is merciful and kind. We are to honor God by knowing, believing, and honoring these attributes that he has revealed to us in his word and even through creation. God has also communicated Himself to us through His ordinances. Ordinances are those things that God has ordered or commanded. Ordinances tell us something about God and His relationship to us. In the beginning, the ordinance of marriage was given to all mankind. The marriage bond between man and woman for life tells us something about God and His relationship to us. Marriage is to be honored, therefore, for example... Marriage is to be honored because there is something that is true about God that is revealed in that ordinance. God gave Abraham and his descendants the ordinance of circumcision. Circumcision communicated something about God and his special relationship to the Hebrews under the old covenant. Circumcision was to be honored, therefore, and not taken lightly. And under the new covenant, Christ has given the church two ordinances, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. God communicates Himself to us through these ordinances. They are to be honored, therefore, and not taken lightly. When we approach them, water baptism at the beginning of the Christian life, and the Lord's Supper as a regular observance of the church, we are to approach these things with reverence, knowing that God is is communicating Himself to us through these means of grace. He is speaking to us, as it were, through these visible signs, He's telling us the truth regarding who He is and how we might have a relationship with Him. Therefore, we are to have reverence for these ordinances that He has given to us. Just as it was with the first and second commandments, so it is with the third. We tend to reduce these commandments down to a minimum, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, you know, I... I, I, I worship God, but I, I really love other things too. No, 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 that's not what the commandment means. God alone is to be our God. He alone is to receive our worship. Nothing else is to be on par with Him. Everything else is to be under Him and loved in its proper place. No idols. Well, well I, you know, what if I just use images to worship the one true God? No, that's not what's being forbidden here. We're not to worship the one true God, even with the use of idols. And what sin do men and women typically think of when they think of violations of the third commandment? What do you think? I would imagine that most people think of the sin of using the name of God or the name of Jesus Christ as a curse word. Isn't that the most common violation of the third commandment in your mind? When men and women are displeased about something, they might take the name God or the name Jesus Christ and use it to express their dissatisfaction with whatever it is that is happening in the world. And indeed, uh, this is a sin. This is a true violation of the third commandment. It is sinful to take up the holy name of God or the precious name of Jesus and to use them in such a vain, empty way. We are to have reverence for God and, and for God in Christ, brothers and sisters, and this means we are to use the names of God, the name Jesus Christ, Uh, with care, never in anger, frustration, or disapproval as if they were curse words. Others may think of the sin of swearing falsely by the name of God, and this too is a violation of the third commandment. If we take an oath or swear by the name of God, then we had better be speaking truth to swear by the name of God and then to speak falsehood Dishonors God. It reveals that we do not fear Him or revere Him in the heart. To take up the name of God and to use it when swearing an oath and then to speak a lie is indeed a violation of the third commandment. By the way, many think that the scriptures forbid us from swearing or taking an oath by the name of God. they they think of that passage that we read earlier in James five verse twelve. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Or perhaps they think of the words of Christ regarding oath swearing in Matthew five thirty three and following. I think a surface reading of both these texts seems to say that Christians are never to take oaths at all. But I don't think that's the meaning of them. Instead, both Christ and James are communicating that truthfulness is to be a way of life. Truthfulness is to be a way of life. We are to speak the truth, brothers and sisters. Uh, In most circumstances, we shouldn't have to be asked to take an oath, but rather our yes should be yes and our no should be no. End of story. Um, But, Sometimes men and women are called to take an oath or to swear, uh, perhaps in a court of law, uh, because of unusually serious circumstances where there needs to be a kind of guarantee that what is being said is truthful. I think both James and Christ speak to this issue, too, uh, by saying if you're, if you're speaking the truth as a way of life, your yes is yes and your no be no, then you will speak the truth in these circumstances as well but they are actually forbidding us from playing games by swearing by something lesser than the name of God, namely the earth or the temple or your mother's grave or something like that. No, when oaths are taken, you are to swear by the name of God and then you are to tell the truth. You are to honor the name of God. You are to not take it in vain. That is what Deuteronomy 10.20 says. Listen, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him, and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So, Deuteronomy 10.20 specifically says that when we swear or when we take an oath, we are to do so by the name of God. We are to use God's name in oath swearing. We're not to play games, though. We're not to swear by some lesser thing. Well, I will not swear by the name of God, but I'll swear by God's throne in heaven. I'll swear by the temple. I'll swear by some lesser thing so that I can do what? Why why would you need to swear by some lesser thing unless you had it in your heart to tell something less than the truth, to be deceptive in some way? Both Christ and James are forbidding that sort of game playing. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is to be your way of life. These texts are not forbidding oath-taking. That would contradict what was said in Deuteronomy 10.20 or Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You can see clearly that Leviticus 19.12 is rooted in the third commandment, and it does not forbid swearing or taking an oath by God's name, instead it forbids swearing falsely by God's name. To swear falsely by God's name would be to profane the name of God. To swear falsely by His name would be to take up the name of God, and then to use it in a vain, empty, or false way. Chapter 23 of our confession is about oaths and vows. I want to read paragraph 1 to you. It says, A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein the person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calleth God to witness what he swears, and to judge him according to the truth or falseness thereof. Paragraph 2 then says, The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet as in matter of wait and moment for confirmation of truth and ending all strife, an oath is war- warranted by the word of God, And so a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. A a wonderful statement concerning oath-taking. When I first read that in our confession, I thought, this seems like such a tangential issue, you know? Oaths and vows. Why why do we need a chapter in our confession about this? But it's vital, isn't it, to to life and society? If, If we cannot trust one another's word, then we cannot function really in society. And there are some circumstances, that is the thing that our confession is is acknowledging, there are some circumstances that are so weighty, you know, it's such an important moment, the truth must be confirmed, strife must be ended. Um, There are circumstances like this where lawful authorities might call upon men and women to take an oath and to swear. And when that happens, it is to be done in the name of God only according to the scriptures, and not by some lesser thing. Brothers and sisters, we are to not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We're to not use it as a swear word. We're to not swear falsely by the name of God. No, we are to treat God with respect. Therefore, we are to honor His name. We are to have reverence for it. So it is certainly true that it is a violation of the third commandment to do these things to take up the name of God and to use it in a vain way as a curse word, to swear falsely by the name of God. Both are irreverent and unholy uses of God's name, and God will not hold them guiltless who uses His name in such a careless way. But if we are to get to the heart of the matter, if we are to truly understand what this law commands and forbids, we must think more broadly. This commandment, again, is about having reverence for God and for all of the ways in which God makes Himself known to us. He has revealed himself to us through his names, his titles, and attributes. And he has also revealed himself to us through his ordinances, words, and works. Brothers and sisters, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, God sets his name upon us. Hear me. In baptism and in the Lord's Supper, God sets his name upon us. Stated differently in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, what do we do except take up the name of the Lord our God? In water baptism, God's name is set upon the one baptized by profession of faith. Baptism signifies membership in the covenant of grace. Baptism should not be approached or administered in a vain, careless, empty Or untrue way. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. Who takes his name in vain. And in the Lord's Supper. God sets his name upon his people. Those who partake. Say they have Jesus as Lord. Those who partake. Are said to be God's children. Those who partake are set apart from the world as citizens of God's kingdom. Baptism marks the entrance into the covenant and the Lord's Supper, the covenant is renewed. Lord's Day after Lord's Day. When we take up the bread and wine, we are claiming to have God as our God through faith in Christ. And God sets His name upon us. We are His and He is ours. The Lord's Supper must not be approached or administered in a vain, empty, or careless way. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. By the way, when baptism is mi- administered, what is to be said? This one is to be baptized in the name. name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We learned this in the class on the Trinity, didn't we? Name is singular, and yet. The one baptized is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in other words, Yahweh is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God's name is set upon the one baptized. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't claim to be a Christian. You see? Don't claim to be a child of God through baptism, through participation in the Lord's Supper, or even with your lips, and then live in such a way that contradicts your profession. You're taking the name of God upon yourself. You're saying, I am His. He's my Father. I'm His child. You bear His name, Christian. And so you had better live in such a way that shows that that profession of faith is true. Don't take it upon yourself in a vain way. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And what should we say about God's word and works? Briefly, I will remind you that God reveals himself to us in his word. We as God's people must have reverence for God's word. When God's word is read, when it is preached, God's people ought to pay careful attention to it. They should work hard to understand it. They must believe it in their hearts and seek to obey it with God's help. It is a dangerous thing to receive God's word in a careless or vain way. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And consider this, God has also revealed himself to us in his works. When we speak of the works of God, we may talk about his work of creation, his work of providence, his work of redemption, We know that God is revealed in the world He has made. He is also revealed through His providential upholding and governing of the world He has made. And He is revealed in the work of redemption too. We live in God's world, brothers and sisters. As cliche as it sounds, history is indeed His story. In other words, we cannot escape God's revelation. He is everywhere revealed through His works. We are to have reverence for God. Therefore, not only in church where the word is preached and the ordinances are administered, but even as we contemplate God's creation, His providence too. I think we should be more careful when we are talking about the Lord's providences. What do we tend to do but gripe and complain about the way that things are going in the world? And we forget that God has willed and permitted it. His glory and grace will be manifest through the world and through the whole course of human history. We cannot forget this. His glory, His power, His majesty, His holiness, His grace is going to be manifest. It's going to be shown forth through the whole course of human history. We have to remember that that there's revelation in all of this. And so we had better be careful when handling this revelation of God. We, we, We have to have reverence for God in every sphere of life. He's to be revered, brothers and sisters. And though we do not see Him face to face, as it were, He makes Himself known to us through revelation. Again, He has revealed Himself in His names, titles, attributes. He even reveals Himself through His ordinances, His word, and His works. All of these forms of revelation are to be handled with great care, for God makes Himself known to us through them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And now that we have considered the heart of the matter and what the third commandment requires and forbids, I'll ask you this familiar question. Have you kept this law perfectly? We confess that we have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. The law condemns us, but the gospel offers the forgiveness of sins and life abundant and eternal in Christ Jesus. What is the gospel then? Well, it is the good news that God has provided a Savior for us. His name is Jesus Christ Jesus Christ was sinless. He perfectly obeyed God's law. Yes, even the third commandment. He possessed a perfect and perpetual reverence for God's name. He came to do the Father's will. More than this, he came to reveal God's name to those whom God had given to him. This is what he says in John seventeen six, praying to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people Whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In other words, Christ did not merely keep God's law in an external way. No, he kept it with reverence for the Father in his heart. And as the God-Man, as the eternal Word of God or Son, come in the flesh, he himself revealed God to us. He kept the third commandment, along with all the others, perfectly and perpetually. Christ did not deserve to die, but died in the place of those given to Him by the Father. He laid down His life as an atoning sacrifice for the sheep. This means that Christ has the forgiveness of sins to give, along with His righteousness as a gift. The forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Christ are received by faith. As John 3.16 so famously says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And this is the gospel. It is the good news that the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life are available through faith in Jesus the Messiah. But one thing I have attempted to stress in these sermons on the Ten Commandments is that the gospel does not only have to do with the forgiveness of sins and with the hope of of heaven and the future. No, those in Christ have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. The law of God, which was marred and distorted and suppressed within us because of sin, is written anew and afresh upon the hearts of all who believe. God does not only teach those in Christ His law. He does not merely write it on stone for us again to function as an external standard. No, what does God do He writes it on our hearts. This was promised through the prophet Jeremiah long before Christ was born. In Jeremiah 31, 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming. This is written from the Old Testament, Old Covenant perspective. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's a marvelous passage, Old Covenant passage, written for the Old Covenant saints to look forward to the coming new covenant. It's going to be different, a different covenant. And one of the things that's going to be different about it is that the law will be written not merely on stone as an external standard. You know, one that we hang on the wall, <laughs> memorize it and say, I got to live up to that standard. No, instead, this this law, the moral law of God is going to be engraven where? Upon the hearts of those who are a part of this new covenant. This is talking about regeneration. The Spirit of God is going to 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 write it on the hearts of, of, of those who are his. And these are going to be moved then to obey this law inwardly by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ by faith, God's moral law, the same law which was contained within the Ten Commandments written on stone at Sinai, has been written on your heart. You keep this law not to earn salvation, but because you have been saved. You keep this law now, not because you have to, but because you want to. You didn't want to before, but now you do. Why? Because the Spirit of God has renewed you. You keep this law not to earn God's love, but because God has loved you, and now you love Him. This is what the Apostle John describes in 1 John 5, 3-5, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What is John saying here? His commandments are not burdensome. Well, all of the Other commandments that were given to Israel under the Old Covenant, the the civil and ceremonial have been removed. Maybe that's a bit of what he's saying here. But I think it is this more than anything. The moral law that was written on stone and imposed upon Old Covenant Israel has now been written upon our hearts, you see. And so we are able to keep it from the heart because of the work that God has done within us. God has set His love upon us and now we are enabled by His grace to, to keep His law. So then... The gospel is not only about the past forgiveness of sins nor the future hope of life eternal. It is about living an abundant life now. It is about living an abundant life now. And here is good news. Though you were once slaves to sin, now you are free in Christ. Though you were once dead to God and to the things of God, now you are alive Though you were once blind, now you see. Prior to knowing Christ, God's moral law stood against you. Its moral demands were written on stone. They condemned you. But now that you are in Christ, the same moral law is written on your heart so that you desire now to do all that God has commanded. You're thinking to yourself, but corruptions remain. Yeah, they do. Corruptions remain within us. We are sojourners living in a sinful world. Temptations are all around us, temptations even reside within us, the flesh is weak. Yes, that is all true. Sometimes we do what we don't want to do and don't do what we wish we would. But here is the point. Those truly in Christ do have God's law within them so that they desire now to do that which is pleasing to the Father. That's the point. So that when you sin, you don't like it, do you, Christian? You feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Maybe a conviction that wasn't there before. But now that you are in Christ, now that God's law, His moral law is written on your heart, you desire to do that which is pleasing to the Father. When you fail to do that which is pleasing to the Father, you're grieved. The Spirit is grieved within you. And so you long to live in obedience to the Lord. We trust that the Lord will sanctify us further by His Word and Spirit and keep us faithful in Christ Jesus to the end. Lord, help us. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace shown to us, for the forgiveness of sins, for the hope of life everlasting. We thank you also for the new life that you have given to us in Christ Jesus, that this law has been written upon our hearts, that your spirit has made us alive. We pray that you would help us to live in obedience to you, to the glory of your name. Teach us your law, help us to understand it, but give us the desire to keep it more and more all the days of our life. Give us the strength, O Lord. We confess to you that we are weak. Corruptions remain within us. We sin against you daily and even momentarily and thoughtward indeed. Lord, have mercy upon us, but sanctify us further. Lord, give us victory over sin so that we might walk in a holy way. In particular, I pray that you would help us to honor you and your most holy name. Help us to honor You in every sphere of life. Help us to especially honor You in this place where Your Word is read and preached and where the sacraments are observed. May You be glorified in us, O God. In Christ's name we pray.